I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, I'm joined today by Andy Haldane, the Chief Executive of the RSA, the Royal Society for the Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, and a former Chief Economist at the Bank of England. From chicken-licking warnings about inflation rates to predictions of V-shaped recoveries, he's had little trouble in capturing the imagination with his predictions, and he's been described by The Spectator as a brilliant real-world observer. Andy, welcome to Changemakers. Michael, thank you. Fantastic to be here, and really look forward to our conversation. Oh, yes. Well, listen, there's lots to talk about. I mean, let's talk about chicken licking. I mean, you know, it's one of the things I think about, about you and some of the other economists that I've I've interviewed, people like Jim O'Neill, is that that you you have this communication gift as well as the sort of, I suppose, the, the, the economic skill, if you like, in terms of simplifying complicated ideas and bringing them to life. Jim did it with with bricks and mints. And I suppose he he's the first to say he wasn't that proud about some of the predictions with, with Brazil and Russia, but he did capture the imagination. You seem to be straight out of the same sort of mould. Is, is that a fair summation, do you think? Well, I think if you're in the social sciences, Michael, and if you're in the public policy game, you need to find ways of distilling your language, your messages, your communications into words and sentences that will work for as wide a spectrum of society as possible, for as wide a spectrum of the public as possible. I suppose in my case, that was helped by me spending a lot of time, as much time as possible, actually, when I was at the Bank of England, out speaking with the public. Mm. So understanding the words and stories they were telling themselves and then using that to replay back to them when it came to my utterances on public policy. So, yes, it was an effort. I mean, you know, I was thinking about that Mark Twain point about how long it takes to be spontaneous. I mean, you know, some of these these ideas are sort of like, you know, they sound off the cuff, but presumably you spent a lot of time planning on it. Yeah, certainly trying to distill your theory, your evidence, your story into that, you know, single liner or a metaphor that that rises above, you know, the technical, that rises above the work a day, that can capture the imagination and summarize the essence of an argument. I think that is one of the key skills that anyone in public policy needs to be able to to try and try and develop because ultimately you know you've got much greater chance of having impact much greater chance of your tools having the desired effect people understand why it is you're making those decisions why it is you're making those statements so you know i think this this communications point is one that central bankers very slowly have woken up to, but are now, I hope, doing a somewhat better job of communicating broadly than they ever have previously. Mm. I'm interested in your own personal relationship between optimism or positivity and and pessimism. Um, Because when I think about your career, I sort of think about certainly the recent career, I think every time I wanted to feel up about the economy, when you were at the Bank of England, I would greatly enjoy your contribution. So whether it was taking aim at the chicken licking doom doom and glooms, as I think you said in in 2020. However, more recently, I think there has been more pessimism perhaps in some some of the tone in terms of some of the problems, certainly some of the social problems that we face. Permacrisis was the Collins word of the year last year in terms of we're just in this persistent state of gloom. Has it had an Andy Haldane effect? Well, I think, you know, the way I'd put the the contribution, you know, public servants like me can make 
is to try and smooth out some of the excesses in expectations. And that smoothing out is as true on the upside, Michael, as it is on the downside. So we know that both pessimism and optimism are contagious and can get ahead of themselves, can run ahead of reality. So I think the role of, of people like me, of public servants, is both to temper the hubris mm. when it risks getting uh, out of control, you know, as was necessary, for example, in the run-up to the global financial crisis, but equally to counter and lean against the pessimism when we think that is overdone. And you know, emerging from COVID, what was tricky for people to see any sunny uplands, I think there was a role for public servants in, in telling a story about recovery in telling a story about how we could get back to normal. And as it turned out, we returned to normal, somewhat a new sort of normal, but a normal nonetheless, somewhat ahead uh, of expectations. Here we stand at the start of 2023 with pervasive pessimism, permacrisis. Now, I think permacrisis is actually a misstatement of where we are. I think polycrisis <laughs> captures it accurately, which is to say lots of things are not going well, but equally it is well within our gift to turn things around. There's no reason why these crises, plural, need be permanent as well as plural. There are things that can and probably should be done public policy-wise that can both curb the crisis and indeed put us back on a more optimistic path. And I think it's the role of people like me to both, you know, not be blind to the reality of today, which is not a comfortable or good one, but also to be optimistic about what's possible looking ahead. I mean, I'm just chuckling that while you're talking about crisis, we could hear the sort of like the police sirens at the back <laughs> add a dramatic effect. Had a dramatic effect, but you did sort of mention the fact the fact about things. You know that the optimism is based on on things going well, and I'm thinking about um, Colin Powell, the American general, used to talk about that optimism is the multiplier. That absolutely, you know, that you had to force optimism into the system for people to believe that there was, you know, that you could win. When, when you look at the UK today and, and you were looking at it on, you know, we know what the pessimism side of the ledger is, but what do you feel positive about? What is going well from your perspective when you look at this at the country at the moment? Well, I mean, when you look at, or indeed better still, Michael, if you travel around the country, and, and I mean, as you know, I do, I do make a point, or I did, especially pre-COVID, of trying to get out and about around the UK as much as possible to, to visit businesses, to visit communities, to speak to le leaders, whether business or government or civil society. You do see pockets of brilliance all over the place. Mm. You see brilliance in our universities. You see brilliance in our businesses. You see brilliance in our public services. You see brilliance in our communities. You can't help sometimes but come back and be bowled over but by how many great things are happening in all four corners of the UK. Now, the truth is that can sometimes be a slightly rose-tinted view on reality. 
because, you know, those doing well naturally gravitate towards you. And we know from the aggregate data that whether it's the economy uh, or broader society, there are lots of things that aren't working well for a great many people. But are there there pockets of brilliance all over the place? Absolutely. Can we build and nurture those clusters of brilliance? Absolutely we can and absolutely we should. And that should be a beacon of optimism for all of us. It's not that we can't do it as a country. It's not that we are condemned to terminal decline. That's far, far, far too defeatist and fatalistic. Mm. We just need to build on our on our successes, of which there are many. It's funny. I mean, I do a lot of work with with small firms and entrepreneurs, and I I chair a thing called the Small Business Charter with business schools. So I get to visit and speak to a lot a lot of small firms. And the way that I often think about it is that on a kind of micro level, there is quite a lot of positivity there in terms of you know an individual business's ability to get through a tough spot, to get through you know the, the potential of of recession. But then a kind of macro belief that actually it's just all just over overwhelmingly bleak and, and and difficult and i suppose the question from an economist's point of view is that how you know how many swallows is it going to take to sort of get us into sort of warmer climes i suppose that's the question is that what, at what point do we start to think we're winning we're actually these these kind of pockets of of change are actually starting to become trends of difference yeah yeah well i mean it's in the nature of a poly crisis if i can use that word rather than perma crisis that it won't take any one thing going well to turn around the system as a whole. So to make that concrete, you know, we need to do a much better job on health and our healthcare systems. That is clear from the ambulance that just went past my room, but from the the, the media, the blanket media coverage right now, we need to do a better job with our educational system to instill a broader base of next generation skills in them. We need to do a better job, not just in innovating. You mentioned those brilliant entrepreneurs that you work with, but also ensuring that all businesses benefit from the full fruits of that innovation, which isn't the case right now. That's why we've got a productivity problem or crisis in this country. We need a spatial policy that makes sure all parts of the map benefit sufficiently from this innovation, from those businesses. We need to invest heavily in our infrastructure, whether that's physical, road and rail, digital, broadband, or social, our high streets and green spaces and museums and youth clubs. So on now, that on that list, if, I mean, that that is a hell of a shopping list. If you were looking for a tipping point issue for the country to invest in, something that might deliver a disproportionate benefit to actually get that engine started, because clearly it, the country can't do everything. What could it do? What would you do if you were back in the Bank of England? What would you advise the government to be spending its money on? Well, I I do think it does require a broadly based effort. This isn't a case of, you know, one thing will turn the dial. I think we have to say, look, across all these systems, all the ones I mentioned, Michael, and a few more besides, they are not as they need to be. And we should start making progress on all of them. The key point here is the journey matters every bit as much as the destination. Mm. So getting started, turning the tide on each and every one of these systems would make all the difference in the world 
to people's expectations and their optimism. Let me take an example, uh, levelling up, the place-based thing that I've spent a bit of time thinking about over a number of years. If you live in some of the poorer parts of the UK, and I've visited most of them now, no one has the, you know, the Panglossian view that they'll be rising to London levels of pay and productivity anytime soon. All those people want is a sense that things will start improving, mm. having gone through a lengthy period of them getting worse and gaps getting wider. If you could make a first footstep towards that objective to begin the journey of improvement after a long period of decline, that, Michael, would be genuinely mm. transformational for people's expectations. It would be the difference between hopefulness and despair. It'd be the difference between choosing not to invest because you don't envisage a better tomorrow and investing because you have a sense that it may pay off tomorrow. And I think if, the, if any government of any hue, whether central or local, could take those first steps across a broad-based set of initiatives, including the economy and health and innovation in place, that truly could put us on a wholly different course in a way that would be self-fulfilling mm. because we know that optimism is. But, but isn't what you're talking about, if you look at this, you know, in the States or you look at this across Northwest Europe, I mean, I mean these are the issues that are, are facing all of these countries, isn't it? In yeah. terms of, you know, that, that actually, you know, that there just doesn't seem to be an, a palatable and easy answer. There doesn't seem to be, or, or even will the will to actually do something about it. I, I just wonder when you look, when you take a more global view, are there any near neighbours, some some sort of contemporary economies that you would, would look at and go, they're getting it right. They're the ones you should go and learn from. Well, I don't think there's any one country you would say had, had sort of had cracked this one. But if you wanted to look for a country that has shown, I think, the way that it's closer to next practice uh, in terms of how it's thinking about the planet, how it's thinking about place, how it's thinking about people. I think New Zealand does a pretty good job. So what have they made a virtue of when it comes to public policy? Well, they've made a virtue of trying to act for the long term, of weighing the fortunes of future generations when setting policy today. And if you do that, that encourages you to make those investments today. Investments in people through skills, investment in places through investing in that infrastructure, whether physical, digital or social that I mentioned, and investment in the planet, of course, mm. in replenishing our natural capital. So, you know, to, if I can bridge a bit to, to my current gig at the RSA, you know, what are we about? We are in the regeneration game, regeneration of people, place and planet. And the country that comes closest to making good on those regenerative practices right now, I would say, would probably be New Zealand. Mm. It's put, putting issues of well-being, people's happiness, if you like, much more front and centre than GDP per se. It's acting for the long term. It's seeking not to pump up the flow of income, but to replenish the stock of capitals, plural, including human capital, people, social capital, communities, and natural capital, planet. So there are ways that this is being tackled from which we can seek inspiration. And I think New Zealand is as good an example as probably exists.
Right. Let's move on to you. I'm interested in trying to get under the surface, Andy, in terms of what, what makes you tick. Because I'm very interested that early on in the interview, you described yourself as a public servant. The thing that I think distinguishes you from other people that have excelled in public service as you have has been that you've always sought to bring your opinion to the table. I was reading a great quote that you said that the best advice you received was that you said, early on in my bank career, I was lamenting the way it did things. Someone told me you're part of the bank. If it doesn't work, just change the bank that that change has always been an important part of who you are in terms of where you were at the bank of england how easy was it to affect change i mean did you enjoy your time there i think it's one of those another of those examples michael where you know change takes longer than you expect but when it comes it happens faster than you anticipated. I think like, that's probably like, been... Like buses. Is like, like buses. <laughs> like buses. Once. <laughs> so, you know, I suppose the, the younger me would have, or the young me, um, would have been impatient for change, you know, deep passion for change, certainly rooted in my experience, but, have we, but have, would have been impatient for it. You know, why can't I change the system, the world uh, tomorrow? I suppose the, the slightly older and more wizened, hopefully a bit wiser me, would say um, that takes patience, you know, so keeping sticking with it, um, persuading others, gently persuading others through your evidence takes some time. Mm. But then uh, what you're waiting for is that moment, that moment when the Overton window is cast open, often around crisis time, when the existing has its existing system has failed or in some cases died, but the new system has not yet been born. To use that moment in between, then to that's when the patient preparation pays off, Mike. Mm. That's <laughs> when having done your homework pays off. Because you come forward into this uh, uncertain world, that's when you seed the clouds with your own ideas, right? And that's when you can affect lasting, significant, system-wide right. change. But, but, but in specifically with, with the Bank of England, did you approach it from the point of view that you wanted to significantly change it, it fundamentally, or were you there to preserve what you viewed as, you know, something that in overall terms worked from your perspective? Well, I think there's, there's absolutely that balance to be struck. So I love institutions. Uh, I, I, I loved the bank every all 32 years I loved. Because I think institutions absolutely are one of the anchors on which good economies and good societies are built. And they are crucial for establishing longevity and institutional memory and to avoiding the, 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 the slings and arrows, the ups and downs of, of everyday politics. Mm. But I also think that institutions need to be dynamic agents of change. So while celebrating the bank's history and heritage in the same way as I celebrate the RSA's centuries of history and heritage, I want them to be dynamos for change when it's needed and when the Overton window is open. And I saw myself as an entrepreneur within the Bank of England for affecting that dynamism but, but especially it's always, but it's always, in, it's always interesting when when you meet people who are obviously uh, they have a sense of urgency they want to create change and then they use you know they, they use their careers to spend time in 
organizations that are not known for being agents of change, that actually it's their stability, it's their history. So I'm sort of trying to get the sense of why you would spend your time in those sorts of institutions and not in a more in a startup environment or in something that felt like, you know, where change was possible more quickly. Now, let's take you back. I mean, University of Sheffield, uh, Jim O'Neill, is, and I've mentioned him earlier, another uh, former alum. I mean, what, let, let's take you back. You, you're sat there on the at the uh, Ecclesaw Road tap. I know Sheffield very well. I'm from Sheffield, <laughs> Sheffield myself, a, f- a favourite pub of the economics fraternity, as I as I uh, as I remember. <laughs> what was a young Andy thinking about then, in terms of the career that you were going to go into? What what you know? Interested to know where you thought it was going to go. Well, I mean, like most of us, as a younger man, I would have had the first idea, Michael. I imagine you were in the same position. But but listen, very early on, prior to getting to Sheffield, you know, I was at school. I'd sort of told myself, perhaps even promised myself that public policy, being a public servant was for me. And that was very much born of my, you know, my growing up experience and the economy not working and asking how I could make it work better. Why Sheffield, largely accidental, as with many people, you know, none of my family had been at university, none of my family had been set on at school beyond the age of 16. So there was no one within my family to ask the person I did ask was my economics teacher, who happened to have gone to Sheffield University. That's why I ended up there Didn't myself. There. Yeah. As it was, you know, fantastic city, a city I still love and have a close attachment to and affinity with. Mm. It too, uh, as, as you might remember, Michael, you know, I'm talking the mid-1980s was going through a pretty rough spell itself that amplified my interest in, in, in the economy, in, in, in public service, and why some places do well, why some places do less well, and might, might be, you know, what might be done to, to improve that. And from that, you know, it was but a hop, skip and a jump to the Bank of England, because, you know, what the bank has distinctively, to go to your question, is both the capacity to think, which is really important, in other words, a brain, but also the capacity to do. It has hands. So, you know, for me, real lasting change for the better comes from combining the brain and the hands, the analysis and the action. And the bank has that in a way that's quite distinctive relative to many other public institutions. But I suppose that experience also gave you intuition or some element of intuition through practical experience. And the thing I'm, I'm sort of thinking about is that, you know, you, you'll know very well the criticisms laid at the door of Andrew Bailey and others about being asleep at the wheel over inflation. You've had a gut feel about these sorts of issues. I'm just sort of, you know, this issue about signals and how an economist gets these. I mean, is, is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it practical experience? Is it just something in you? I mean, because it's not just about, about analysing lots of data. It's about how you feel about that data, isn't it, in terms of your your expectation about the predictions of what might come as a result of it? Spot on. Going with your gut, intuition, as it's sometimes called, is really important. All my biggest mistakes, of which there have been many, Michael, have come when I've, I've done the opposite of what my gut tells me. I've gone against my intuition. Uh, I've done the thing I think is, is the right thing to do in some broader sense rather than the right thing to do personally. Uh, where does that come from? Well, you know, some of it is uh, the data is really important. You know, I was a data junkie. I remain a data junkie. That's a very important raw ingredient, uh, ingredient of your intuition, of forming your judgment. But so too is harvesting the qualitative from those conversations from the stories that people tell 
each other about how the world works. And that's why, you know, I spent so much time out and about walking the streets, having those conversations to harvest those stories and to use them to inform my view of what was going on. If, if I think of a particular example, you know, let's go back to, you know, to, to 2021, early 22. If you had conversations then, as I did with businesses, uh, they would tell you that inflation was coming at real pace down the pipeline. They could see it in their buying decisions if you were a business. That was there in, in the Bank of England's agents' reports mm. very early on, long before it showed up in headline measures of inflation. So, you know, you don't have to go back very far to see examples of where the stories, where the conversations, where the qualitative was crucial for a big macro judgment in this case about inflation, the cost of which we're now still feeling. Do you think some of this is about your attitude towards risk in the way that you look at data? A lot of the criticism of the Bank of England over over the sort of creeping tragedy of inflation as we're going through it at the moment has been, well, it waited for too long before it took the necessary action. If you spot a signal early, presumably it's not just enough to analyse it. You've got to jump to action, haven't you, to, to address it? Uh, I mean, you do. You have to be prepared to contemplate that we've experienced uh, a shift in regime. You know, we, we were anchored in a regime of low inflation for 20, 30, maybe 40 years. But periodically, shifts in regime happen. And spotting the telltale signs, the early stage signs, the leading indicators of a regime shift having happened is really important for getting the big calls right. Now, as it turned out, um, on the inflation one, I didn't think that was an especially big call. I mean, the rest of the world did, but I didn't. Because, you know, if you have an economy with a global economy, this is, with rapidly bouncing back demand as a result of the opening up and impaired supply as a result of COVID, on top of which you had layered the biggest dose of both monetary and fiscal policy stimulus, probably in human history, then unless the laws of economic gravity, Michael, have suspended themselves it was very likely that prices were going to head north mm. and most, most probably at a rapid rate of knots. And so it has, came, so it has come to pass. Mm. So sometimes this is not about, you know, a blinding streak of inspiration. This is just kind of rooting your analysis in the very basics of economics 101 and telling a different story about the future than has been the case in the past. And on this front, that's exactly what happened. And we spent quite a bit of this, this conversation talking about, I suppose, the storytelling about that future. But it strikes me that being a kind of canary in the mine and, you know, just sort of predictions about what the data was telling you was not enough for your career. Because a lot of people say, well, why did Andy Haldane go to the RSA? A lot of people say, but it strikes me because you wanted to also be an agent of change. You wanted to make things happen. And that's why we're now hearing you talk about everything from, you know, dumping maths as a sort of descriptor for, for the subject through to the health of the UK's social immune system. I mean, is this now Andy unleashed at the RSA? Well, I don't know about unleashed, but certainly Andy redirected that, you know, if you're a public servant, you need, uh, or indeed, whatever your vocation, head to where the risks and challenges and opportunities are greatest. And if I think of where the risks and challenges and opportunities are greatest for the economy and for society right now, you know, redemption will not come from the Bank of England. 
Mm. Its tools are not the tools we need to solve our economic and social ills right now. They reside elsewhere. And we've touched upon, Michael, the systems that need fixing, whether it's education or health or innovation or place. The Bank of England doesn't have the tools of the trade to fix those. Uh, the RSA uh, and others can play a crucial role in fixing mm. those things. It will require a cross-sector effort, both public sector, government, private sector, business, and civil society in its many and various forms coming together to affect those changes to health and education and innovation and business and place. And the RSA is one of those places, one of those enlightenment institutions that can straddle sectors and affect that change for those issues that are most important right now. And that's why I'm here. Right. You also, in getting there, did a six-month secondment drafting the government's levelling up white paper. Did that give you, in any sense, a personal roadmap of the things you wanted wanted to address? I mean, what did you learn about it? And, and, and how real was it in your experience as a direction of travel and a commitment to action? Yeah, I mean, the Leveling Up Agenda speaks to my lifelong passion, born partly a personal experience uh, up in, um, you know, from where I kicked off, which is my Sunderland Council State, through to where I grew up in, in West Yorkshire. But at root, that white paper, Michael, was exactly what I've just been describing. It was a means partly of redirecting central government, which had focused too little on issues of geography and the map of the UK. But more importantly, that white paper is about enabling and empowering local actors, local leaders, not just government leaders, but business leaders and civil society leaders to seize control of their own destiny mm. and to make that regeneration happen within their own place. It's fanciful, indeed nonsense, to think that white or central government politicians can have all the answers. They do not and they cannot have those answers. Change only comes at the local level from within and will only happen if central government empowers and finances and enables that local change. Well, and I'm wondering, is 2023 the year we see it? So last question, I mean, things I'm thinking about as, you know, I, I kicked off my career working at Leeds City Council, your, your old city. And, you know, a lot of the talk then was about devolution, about lots of thoughts about things that might change. And of course, a lot of sort of hopes and dreams were dashed. You said in, in 2020, Andy, I mean, last question to you, said that all crises open up opportunities to think afresh. I mean, I think everybody would agree, you know, the poly crisis, the perma crisis, it is, it is a crisis. What would you give listeners to think about in terms of this brand new year that we're talking at the beginning of, in terms of where things might go? What are the fresh opportunities that, that come out of the specific conditions that we're living in today? Yeah, well, in some ways, that is the question, Michael, and you've asked it, and you've asked it very eloquently. And what I would say is that there is, there's two possible responses to a period of acute uncertainty. We've gone through a lengthy period, decades, arguably, of acute uncertainty with first the global financial crisis, then Brexit, then COVID, then the cost of living crisis and the health crisis, hence the poly crisis. Two responses possible to those, two responses possible to uncertainty. Uh, one is to hunker down and hope for the best and hope that in the fullness of time, uncertainty will pass, the clouds will lift and the sunny uplands will once, once more be visible. If I 
were in government right now, local or central, if I were in business right now, if I were running a charity right now, I think that path will not open up anytime soon. The clouds will not lift anytime soon. I think the only certainty in the near term is a prolonged period of uncertainty. And that's why... So we should get used to it. (laughs) We should, one, get used to it, but also use the opportunity that it opens up to affect change, that that point of crisis, that point of uncertainty is exactly the moment where you shouldn't be petrified by uncertainty, Mm. but use that as a prompt for renewed action. Mm. Whether you are government, whether you are business, whether you are a charity or a member of civil society, to be the change in Gandhi's terms that you wish to see in the world, to go about that regime shift, that system shift that you need to not just talk about, but act upon. So I hope 2023 and that uncertainty, that policy polycrisis could be the prompt, not for stasis, but for real action to solve the problems we've discussed at some length, Michael, this morning. It's the mindset, Michael, used in the daily meetings at the venture capital company, Sequoia Capital, where they they lean against the inactivity and pessimism bias by asking themselves at every morning meeting, what could go right? Mm. And that's the self-same question we need to be asking and answering uh, ourselves in 2023 at this moment of max crisis and max uncertainty. Brilliant. And I have to say, spoken like a true contrarian, what could possibly go right? That seems to me the question we should be asking about ourselves. And also, I think perhaps a clue to the next chapter of Andy's career in terms of that more entrepreneurial energy that is clearly there to be unleashed. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Michael, it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed our our conversation. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 